First, a word about something free. I know the bookstore's over there, and feel free to spend money over there. Look at that tall pile of books over there. I wonder what that could be. I'll mention that in a minute. But free. Uh, as probably a number of you know, Dr. Larry McCarg is actually on the board of trustees of Westminster Seminary, California, when Larry and Lynn were in Escondido for the board meeting just before graduation. He had the presence of mind to go to our development office and ask for uh, some copies of some things that we put out to serve the church, especially things that had writings by a guy named Johnson. And I don't know why he thought of that in particular, but uh, he managed to get them to Len Sanchez, and Len found where they were, or somehow anyway, remembered that they were coming, and uh, we found them, and here they are. Uh, These are... several things from the seminary publication called Evangelium. You can call it Evangelium if you want to, but if you're really Latin, Evangelium, uh, which we are happy to send free to anybody who requests it. It it comes out, I think, usually three times a year uh, these days, a series of articles on various things. And these actually were out of the first one, so we just have a reprint of my essay in it. Um, I love Simon Peter. He always says the wrong thing and gets corrected so the rest of us don't have to do it, you know. So this one is entitled Never Lord, based on the three times when when Simon Peter responded to Jesus, Never Lord. Which when you think about it, it's a rather odd thing to call Jesus Lord and then say, No, you're wrong. Um, but Jesus said he was going to go to the cross. Simon Peter said, No, no, no. Don't you remember I said you were the Christ, the Son of the Living God? That's wrong. And Jesus had to rebuke him there. And uh Jesus was ready to wash the disciples' feet. What did Simon Peter say? You'll never wash my feet, Lord. Uh, And then Jesus had to rebuke him again. And the third one is actually in the book of Acts, when uh, the Lord says in the heavenly vision in Acts 10, we're going to come to that uh, this week, uh, to Simon Peter, that vision where all kinds of food comes, uh, all kinds of animals come down in the vision, clean and unclean, and the Lord says, kill and eat anything. And he says, never, Lord. I would never eat unclean food. And the Lord rebukes him again. So that's this essay. Um, it occurred to me that there was another time and a later Evangelium that came out when Peter actually said in action, never, Lord. And that was when he'd been preaching the gospel and spending good time with, with, the, uh, with the Gentile believers. Ooh, thank you. And uh, under the pressure of some of the representatives from the church in Jerusalem, when they arrived at Antioch, he pulled back and in effect was denying the gospel that he'd been preaching by refusing to have fellowship. So that's this one. This other article, it has walking straight toward gospel truth. And then a more recent Evangelium has one that is called The Joys of the Coming Kingdom. Um, Those of you who are at... Faith Church in Long Beach. I know the Kellers were there. Maybe some of the rest of you were when I got to preach there a while ago about the ministry of the um, the 72 or the 70 disciples. This is that sermon, Truth, Truth in Advertising. You've already heard it, but here's it in print form. So there are lots of these down here. Uh, I think we think one for every family. So you could pick up one of these, one of these, and one of these, and you can see visibly how they're different from one another. And feel free to grab one of those afterwards. Um, let me just mention, while we're on this, the tall stack over there, which is uh, 
a new book called Him We Proclaim, Preaching Christ from All the Scriptures. Uh, it, was, it is a book that really encapsulates what I'm doing in teaching preaching at Westminster Seminary, California. I and my colleagues, uh, Julius Kim and Howell Jones in practical theology, the whole faculty as well. And uh, it was really a labor of love for me because it kind of started when I was teaching alongside Dr. Edmund Clowney uh, for some pastors in our Doctor of Ministry program. He would teach a morning course and I would teach an afternoon course. Uh, and he would show us Christ in the Pentateuch or Christ in the Psalms or Christ in the wisdom literature generally and Christ in the prophets. And then my job in the afternoon was to come through in the afternoon and show these pastors how and why Dr. Clowney was doing what he was doing and connecting the whole scripture to Jesus. Um, uh, and, uh, and so that was where it began. But then when I was uh, invited to switch from New Testament into practical theology, I worked on it more for our students it's not just for preachers. I hope preachers get some use out of it, but it's for all kinds of folks. Uh, some of my most trusted proofreaders, uh, besides my wife, who is always my first and best editor, um, who reads everything I do, if I have any sense before I let anybody else see it, she reads it. And, uh, but also were uh, my son and daughter-in-law, who are serving in Asia. Uh, I sent them... Uh, electronically uh, the, the chapters so that they could use it sort of for their family devotions among other things. So I hope it will be of real use. It, it is um, in, in loving and grateful memory of Dr. Clowney who uh, died just two years ago in March. Um, my aim was to finish it so that he could proofread it and tell me all the places where it needed to be corrected. <laughs> but I missed by close to two years. And PNR aimed to get it out exactly two years after his uh, promotion from the church militant to the church triumphant. And we missed by a week, but that's pretty close in any case. And uh, it really is a desire to carry forward that uh, gospel-grounded, uh, grace-motivated, Christ-centered uh, preaching that, that feeds our hearts and, and stirs us to want to love and to obey and, uh, and to do whatever the Lord calls us to do. Uh, that as he pities the nations and constrains the earth to come, he may use us uh, and we might see his churches full. So all of that by way of some of the stuff I've done, and um, that's, that's enough on that. Let's, go, let's, go, let's get to God's word now. Uh, open your Bibles, please, with me to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 26, uh, which is the whole chapter. Uh, It's not the whole story, actually. The story continues in Acts chapter 4, as Peter and John are arrested for a good deed, that is, for restoring or actually giving for the first time to a man who had never walked in his whole 40 years of life, the, the ability to walk, and not just to walk, but to leap for joy at the power of God to restore what is broken in our world. And uh, so it's not the whole story, but it is uh, enough of the story for us to chew on uh, this evening. So hear now God's word from the book of Acts, chapter 3. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. 
and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for, rest, for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. Let's ask him to teach us from it this evening. Father, we pray that you will show us the glory of Jesus, the one who is in the process of restoring what is broken and damaged in this world, the one who has achieved what needs to be done to reconcile us to you, fulfilling your promises and your prophecies by suffering the rejection of his people and suffering your wrath in our place. 
and Jesus the Messiah who will come again at the end of this age to restore all things, to bring in a new heavens and a new earth in which the curse and all of the toxic byproducts of sin are banished once and for all, in which righteousness dwells and there is peace and joy, in which there is no more sorrow, suffering, crying, pain, and death itself will be gone forever. Father, fix our hearts and eyes on Jesus. Teach us where we need His restoring, repairing, reconciling work still at work in our lives, even this evening. And teach us, turn us to Him for the healing that we need. We pray in His name. Amen. Last Sunday was a special day, right? That's right. And you kids are OPC kids, and you know why it was a special day. Because last Sunday, we remembered the resurrection of Jesus, right? Oh, and we did that the Sunday before. And we'll do that next Sunday and the Sunday after. And that's the most special thing about last Sunday. But there's another kind of special thing. It's not even close, but a kind of special thing that our nation does once a year, and that happened to fall on last Sunday, too. Anybody remember? Father's Day, yes. Good. My kids all called me from the far reaches of the... Well, not quite. uh, From the San Joaquin Valley and from Mississippi and from Florida, and then at 9.30 p.m., which was 12... 30 a.m. Monday morning, Georgia time, John Switzerland, I mean, John's friend called. He'd gotten back from, with his wife and family from a long trip. Anyway, Father's Day. Fathers are special. Now, some of them aren't so great. None of us are all that we should be. But, you know, one of the things that dads sometimes can do is fix things. Broken toys, um, burst tires on your bicycle. Maybe dads can fix those kind of things. Um, Dads do other more important things. They teach you the Bible. They teach you the catechism. They love your mom. They pray with and for you. But one thing they can do is fix things. And that can make dads kind of useful. Sometimes they can even fix things around the house. The day before Father's Day, I was absolutely astonished. I was able to fix our sprinklers. Whew! That was a, an amazing thing. I thought I was going to have to pay some guy and pay him big hours, hourly rate to come replace a sprinkler, but somehow I did it. My wife was surprised too. I had no kids to boast to. They weren't nearby, but anyway. But you know, dads cannot fix everything. We have a little guy in our congregation, Michael, who, when he was born, had cancer on his spinal column and spinal cord. And Michael underwent a whole series of operations and radiation and chemotherapy before he was one year old. Michael is full of life. He is a a motor vehicle danger around New Life Church because he goes at the speed of light in his wheelchair. Michael's legs, unless the Lord were to do something that no medical doctor could ever figure out how to do, Michael's legs will never be usable for him to walk. 
And I know Michael's dad and how much Michael's dad loves Michael and Michael's seven, yes, count them, seven brothers, all boys. They finally decided this, you know, the girl wasn't going to come, so they're just going to give up trying, you know. Uh, they have one more, Wesley, who's younger than Michael. But uh, I, kn- I know how much Michael's dad would love to be able to fix Michael and be able to have Michael run, not just wheel with his brothers everywhere. Um, but that's not going to happen. Michael got a lot of expert care and treatment from you know, the best that San Diego County had to offer in terms of medical care. But there are things that we just can't fix, no matter how much we want to. I know Americans don't believe that. We think throw enough money and technology at anything and you're bound to be able to fix it. It's just not true. This man that we read about knew that. He didn't have all the medical resources that were lavished on Michael. But he, like Michael, was born unable to walk, always depending on other people. It says here, they carried him to the gate of the temple every day so that he could beg for a handout, for alms, so the people would provide for them. Who were the they? We don't know. No doubt, as a younger boy, perhaps his parents carried him as they could provide for him in that way as well as other ways. Or his brothers, perhaps. If his parents, as is most likely, have died, he's 40 years old. People didn't live that long. If he was born when his parents were in their 20s, they probably are, die, are, are dead now. But somebody's still taking pity on him and getting him to the temple so that he can ask people as they come to worship for help, for some support. He can't move apart from the help of others. He can't feed himself without handouts from others. He knew that there are things that we cannot fix. And so the worshipers came in, and maybe some of them tried to ignore him, the way sometimes when you see panhandlers places, you try to ignore, you know, avoid eye contact, walk on the other side. They were going to worship after all, and it was true that the scriptures and the rabbis reinforced it, that it's a good thing as you go to worship to show kindness to the poor and the needy. So that was probably a pretty good place to beg by the beautiful gate. Uh, I don't know what the proceeds were, obviously. It doesn't tell us that, but... Uh, In any case, that was the life that he had to resign himself to. No doubt he had given up long ago, even hoping that he might someday ever walk on his own two feet, let alone running or leaping. But as you heard, Jesus had a surprise for this man. Jesus was going to not only restore this man's feet so that he could walk and run and jump for joy as he praised God in the temple. He was going to make this man an object lesson of what Jesus intends to do for the whole created order, for the whole universe. That's why the same verb that's used early in this text about restoring this man's legs and ankles so that he could stand and walk is the verb that is folded into a similar noun later in the text in which Peter says Jesus is going to stay in heaven until the time comes for restoring all things. Restore, restore. 
This man is a sign, a preview of what Jesus will finally do when he comes back and sets right everything that's wrong with this world, fixes everything that's broken in this world as well. So we have a sign, verses 1 through 10, the miracle, the healing. And then we have a sermon to show us what the sign means from Peter in the rest of the chapter. And as you're following your outline, you see that's our two points for tonight. The lame leaps, and then the scorned servant whose name brings healing. Jesus came to the temple during his earthly ministry at several different times that are important and significant. As a young infant, he was brought to the temple at the time when the time came for Mary's ritual cleansing after having given birth to her son. And you remember that Luke tells us about that event when Simeon and Anna, very special people, my grandson is named Simeon because Simeon declared that Jesus was the light to the nations. Where have we heard that before? Yes, Isaiah 49, verse 6. Simeon's quoting Isaiah in Luke chapter 2. Greet Jesus, the infant Jesus, as the hope and the comfort and the consolation of Israel. Jesus comes back to the temple to cleanse the temple early in his ministry, late in his ministry. He teaches in the temple. Jesus is coming back to the temple here too, even though no one sees him. That's the point, that Jesus is the one who is bringing healing to this man in the temple. The promise and the prophecy that God gave through the prophet Malachi, suddenly the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple, is being fulfilled, not only in Jesus' earthly ministry, where he comes as Lord at various points in that ministry to purify the temple and make it a fit place for the meeting of God with his people, but now as he comes as Peter and John come, as is the custom. Notice they come, verse 1, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, roughly three in the afternoon, which we know from other sources is around the time when the evening, what we call the evening sacrifice is offered, especially significant time to offer prayers to God. We're going to notice that uh, a Roman centurion army officer by the name of Cornelius also spent the ninth hour in prayer to the God of Israel. Interesting. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea on the coast. But his prayer life is attuned. Uh, his iPod and tells him, and his PDA tells him, I want to pray now because I'm connected with the Jerusalem temple. So they come for prayer. Even though in one sense, Jesus' death and resurrection has made that physical temple obsolete. Even though on the day of Pentecost, those tongues of flame showed that Jesus was building a new temple made out of people, not out of stones, not out of precious metals, but a new people, made out, a new temple made out of something far more precious than gold or silver, made out of people whose lives are transformed by the Spirit of God. Still, it was appropriate for Peter and John and others to worship in that old temple until it would be destroyed in 70 A.D. So they're entering in, and they notice the man who's begging, and they fix their eyes on him. And Peter says, look at us. Now from the way Luke describes his reaction, 
you can tell that he didn't have many people tell him that unless they were going to give him something big, right? He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from him, from them. I imagine he was pretty used to people avoiding eye contact, maybe tossing a little something into whatever bag or uh, he had there, but trying to avoid too much contact. But here is somebody who stops, looks directly at him and says, now you look at us. And so there's eye contact there. And he wonders how big a gift it's going to be. Maybe he won't have to be carried to the temple every day this week. Maybe, maybe he'll be able to feed himself for a whole week on what they're going to give. He doesn't know. And then Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold. Talk about plummeting hopes from the height to the depths. Why do you tell me to look at you then? You don't have anything to give me. Oh, but Peter does have something to give him, doesn't he? He says... Here's what I have to give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter grabs his hand and lifts him up. In the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus' name. We looked at that some last night. That it's not a magic formula, but as Peter says, it's faith in Jesus' name that has made this man well. It's because... Peter and John, as Jesus' special messengers and apostles, are carrying the name and the message of Jesus with them that provokes and evokes faith, that brings people to trust in Jesus. In a certain sense, they're human counterparts to the great angel that led Israel out of the Exodus, when God said in Exodus uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus, uh, when God said in Exodus 23:21, "Pay special attention to my angel, obey his voice, do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. My name is in him. He reveals me to Israel. So now by his name, Jesus reveals himself, and he draws near to heal and evokes trust in this man. That's the point that Peter wants to make in verse 16. Jesus' name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And that faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And so Peter grips the man, raises him up. He stands now on ankles that have never before borne his weight. Forty years of life, he's never stood upright. And now he can not only stand, but he can walk. He can not only walk, but he can leap. And in the walking and the leaping, he is praising God. He is the fulfillment, a fulfillment. Not the only one by a long shot, but a fulfillment of the great promise of God in Isaiah 35. Your God will come. Your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like the deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus had referred to that prophecy at an earlier point, back in Luke chapter 7. We talked about John the baptizer predicting that Jesus would come to baptize in the Holy Spirit and in fire that he would come with his winnowing fork in his hand, he would come to judge those who were defying 
the truth of God and the holiness of God, that Jesus would come as a judge. Now John is in prison in Luke 7. And John sends some of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the coming one? Or should we look for someone else? Now John had to have been pretty discouraged to ask that question in the light of what he had seen. Because you remember that he had been told by God as a prophet that God had said to him, the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. And John had declared that when he saw Jesus receive the Spirit, anointing him for his work as the anointed king. John had declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John is in Herod's prison and he's wondering, was I right? Because I predicted that Jesus would come to bring salvation and judgment. And uh, I'm not seeing much of the judgment on the wicked. I'm in jail for preaching the truth. And Herod is the one who put me here, who's an adulterer who stole his brother's wife. And I told him the truth about his need to repent. And now I'm behind bars. Notice Jesus' answer when John's disciples bring this question. Luke tells us in verse 21 of Luke 7, In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So he answered them, You go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or we could translate that last verse. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. Who is not scandalized by me. Because Jesus' point is, John, I'm coming now to bring salvation. And you can hear in the record of what Jesus had done in bringing salvation to the blind and the lame and the deaf and the lepers and hope to the poor, that emphasis on salvation But what Jesus is saying is the day of judgment is delayed because I need to come to bear the judgment of my people first. Now that's not all explicit there, but that's what's packed into there. And Jesus says, John, don't stumble over the way I'm bringing in the kingdom. Now, as Peter and John go to the temple, Jesus has offered that final sacrifice. He has been raised from the dead. The day of judgment is still out in the future. It's still to come when Jesus returns. But now again, we see the power of Jesus' name fulfilling this prophecy. The lame leaping like a deer in joy. And now the man enters into the temple. The Old Testament law required that at least the Levites and the sons of Aaron, who were the priestly tribe, if they had a young man who had a physical defect such as lameness, he would not be permitted to serve along with his brothers and his cousins and others, along with his father in the temple. Because that was to symbolize the purity that God demanded of those who stood in his presence. may not seem fair to you, 
But God has the right to determine who comes into His presence. And that was part of the way that He gave us an object lesson that everybody could see that one needed to be pure to come into His presence. No one with leprosy, no one who was lame could come into His presence. We don't know whether that applied to Israelites generally. There's no specific command in the books of Moses about that. But it's possible that people extended, as they sometimes did, the laws relating to the Levites to everybody. And it may be that this is one of the first times or the first time that this man ever had permission to actually go into the temple courts. And so he enters in to praise God. And the people who recognized him, who had been walking by him year after year, sidelong glance, okay, throw him something today, maybe not tomorrow, recognized him and were amazed. And they were so amazed that they all gathered around Peter and John. As you see, he kind of grabbed onto them and wouldn't let them go. And now Peter and John have a problem because people think it's all about them. And they don't want them to think that at all. They have no interest in being anybody's hero because they know it's not them. And so the sign leads to the sermon. And Peter begins, as you hear, (coughs) here. Thanks for the juice. I didn't think I'd need it, but I did. (coughs) He begins by saying, why are you looking at us? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? It wasn't us. Now, in the ancient world, there were all kinds of weird legends about healings through extraordinary people. The pagans had their extraordinary people who had supernatural powers to heal, supposedly. In Judaism, it wasn't so much that they were super people, but that they were especially holy people. Jewish tradition spoke of teachers who were so pious that God was almost obligated to answer their prayers because they were so righteous. They had every right to expect Him to to do what they asked. There's a story in the Talmud. comes from slightly later than the New Testament period, but it reflects the idea about a very pious Jewish rabbi by the name of Honi, H-O-N-I, sometimes referred to as Honi the circle drawer, because so the story goes in the Talmud, in a time of drought when everything was dusty, he stood in a dusty field and drew a circle around himself, and then he prayed to God in the presence of the whole gathered community, O God, I know that you listen to me as a father listens to his son, and now I have resolved that I will not move from this circle until you send rain on the earth and relief to your people from this terrible drought and famine. And the Talmud says, the raindrops immediately began to fall. Honey was so righteous, God had to answer his prayer. So the story goes. If that's the attitude you see that people have, you can see why Peter immediately wants to say, whoa, wait a minute, it's not us. Fast forward to Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, a pagan town, pagan through and through, no synagogue in Lystra. And, interestingly, there is a man there, lame from birth. Hmm, that's an interesting parallel. And Paul looks at him and sees that he has faith to be healed by the power of Jesus. And Paul commands him to stand up, and he does. 
and he stands and he walks and the whole crowd gathers around. Now they don't think Paul and Barnabas are simply very pious rabbis. They think Paul and Barnabas are gods in disguise. Zeus and Hermes have come down in among us to find, a, find out whether we are good and hospitable people. There's a legend that the Roman poet Ovid records from this area in uh, Lystra about the, a nearby town that was not so hospitable and got flooded out because the gods were angry. That's what they think is happening. The gods have come among us. And Paul and Barnabas do the same thing that Peter and John do here. Don't look at us. It's not us. Don't be confused. We're not the heroes of this story. So here Peter says, it's God who has brought this man healing through his servant, Jesus. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his servant, Jesus. All of this language, the God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's you find that a number of places in the Old Testament, including God's appearance to Moses at the burning bush in the Sinai wilderness in Exodus 3 when God's going to send him back to lead the people to freedom. But the rest of the language here is really drawn out of the servant song in Isaiah 53 and actually the very end of 52 it begins when God says that he would glorify his righteous servant. You see that Peter calls Jesus here in verse 14, the Holy and Righteous One. That's a title of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, 11. Jesus is the faithful servant, the obedient servant, the suffering servant, the servant rejected by the people he came to rescue. See how often Peter brings that up. Peter's learning to read the Bible, to read the Old Testament in the light of Jesus Christ because Jesus has been teaching him and the Holy Spirit has been showing him. So Peter says, you rejected him. You handed him over to Pilate. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you as you denied the Holy and Righteous One. Remember what Isaiah said? He was despised, rejected by men. We esteemed him not. He bore our griefs, but we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. That's all the background here. That's what Peter is saying. Jesus is the servant of the Lord, promised and prophesied in Isaiah 53. Rejected by you, but exalted and glorified by God in His resurrection. Wonderful, rich titles of Jesus here. The Holy and Righteous One, Servant of the Lord, Author of Life in verse 15. That word that's translated in our versions, author, is a really hard Greek word to translate. Um, in the Old Testament, it was often used for the heads of the tribes or the captain of the army of Israel. Joshua, this word is applied to Joshua as the leader, the military leader of God's people. Uh, and that may be what it's, what's being gotten at here. Not just that Jesus is the source of life, but that he's the leader to life. He's the trailblazer. He's the captain. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews for the author, the captain of our salvation. Uh, he's the one who leads to life by himself going through death and into life. All of this, Peter is saying, shows the power of Jesus the servant to bring this man complete healing and wholeness. 
This is a sign. In fact, the healing of this man is really in itself a kind of a sign pointing back to Jesus' resurrection because the same verb that's used to describe how Peter raised up the lame man, Peter then turns around and uses in his sermon to talk about how God raised up Jesus, his servant. So Jesus is the one who has brought healing to this man and he's done it through faith. Not through piety, not through holiness, not through the righteous achievement of the apostles, and not through the man's righteous achievement. But Jesus' righteousness has been applied to this man in healing power, as this man has simply trusted in the power of Jesus to bring him salvation. Well, in verse 17, you see Peter has been pretty hard on these folks. You rejected the holy and righteous one. You denied him before Pilate. You asked for a murderer instead of the pioneer, the trailblazer to life. Now, what's to become of you? Suddenly their question is changed from who are these guys and how could they do this miracle to what will become of us in the light of how we treated God's beloved servant. And now Peter turns to a very compassionate and passionate invitation to humble themselves, to humble ourselves too, and receive the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. He says, I know you acted in ignorance. I know your rulers acted in ignorance. Now, he's not letting them off the hook. He's not saying, oh, well, you didn't know, no problem, no harm, no foul. That's your excuse. No, no, he's not saying that. But he is saying that because you acted in ignorance, there is still an opportunity for you to receive mercy if you turn away. Now that you know full well who it is whom you begged to be executed on that Roman cross, now that you know who he is, there's a place for repentance for you. Paul himself, interestingly, 1 Timothy 1.13, talked about his own criminal record in his self-righteousness, how he persecuted the church. And he said, but I found mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And Paul was not saying in 1 Timothy 1.13, it's not my fault, I didn't know. He's saying, my ignorance was guilty ignorance, but still there's a place for me to receive mercy. In fact, as Peter says here, what you ignorantly did, God had planned from the very beginning for your good. You acted ignorantly, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled through your ignorance. This is a theme that you find over and over in the book of Acts, and it's a theme that you find over and over in the Bible. Think back to at the very end of Genesis, when Jacob dies, and Joseph is the ruler of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh. And his brothers think, oh, now our father's dead. Now he's going to get even with us for all the rotten things we did to him. And so they go very humbly and say, remember our father said you need to be nice to us. And Joseph says, you intended all that you did to me for evil, but God intended it for good. God is sovereign even over the evil actions of evil people. And that's what Peter's saying here. You acted ignorantly, 
You defied God. You rejected His, His servant. But God, all through that, was working for your good, fulfilling His promise that His Christ would suffer, and through that suffering would open the way for forgiveness and for repentance. So Peter says, humble yourselves. Repent. Turn around. And he gives wonderful promises. He says, turn around so that your sins may be wiped out, including this greatest of all sins, having defied God and denied His beloved and honored servant. Don't think that even this sin is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. This is a church camp, right? But you know what else? It's a group of people who need forgiveness of sins that can only come in Jesus Christ. I can't read hearts. I don't know if all of you are trusting in Jesus tonight or not. And so I will say to you, if you think your sins are so bad, maybe you've hidden them from your folks, maybe you've hidden them from the elders, maybe you're ashamed to have anybody know about them and you think they're really beyond the reach of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, don't believe that lie of the devil that there is sin that Jesus can't forgive, that his blood cannot cover and wipe away. That's a lie. The Word of God says the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Trust. Trust in Him. Wonderful promise that your sins may be wiped out. And that's not all. You see what Peter says? That sins may be wiped out. Verse 20, The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoration of all things. The times of refreshing, the restoration of all things. Here Peter's talking really about the great hope of Jesus' return from heaven when the new heavens and the new earth will come in. In effect, because he picks up the language of restoration that was used earlier for this lame man's ankles, he's saying that little preview of healing of God fixing what is broken in this world as this man is leaping now, that is really just a preview of a much bigger healing and restoration to come. The restoration of all things. The repair of the universe. The introduction of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Cosmic repair when Jesus sets the whole universe right. The book of Revelation shows us that in chapter 22. No more crying, no more weeping, no more pain, no more death, no more curse. All the things that spoil even the best of times in this world and sometimes makes life absolute anguish, all of those things will be eradicated when Jesus returns to renew and restore this old sin-stained creation into a new creation fully and completely in which there is no more sorrow. Remember back in chapter 1, the disciples were saying, now Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, oh, my friends, you don't have big enough dreams. 
I'm working on something much bigger than that. Not just restoring political or military power to Israel. I'm bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Peter's getting the point, isn't he? He's saying the day is coming, even as Jesus is now spreading the light of salvation to the ends of the earth, the day is coming when the restoration is not just going to be for Israel. In fact, it's not even only going to be reconciliation of the nations to God through the work of Christ, but it's going to be the restoration of the world and the universe as it's supposed to be in perfect joy, in perfect beauty. Everything broken will be fixed. Michael won't need his wheelchair. So Peter says, repent, turn, listen, listen. Because he says, Jesus is the prophet promised by Moses. See verses 22. 23, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And every soul that does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. Jesus is that prophet. There's a lot of buzz about who that prophet was. John the baptizer was asked, Are you the prophet? And they meant this prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. There were prophets in the succession of Moses. But Numbers 12 tells us that there was no prophet that would arise like Moses with whom God spoke face to face not until that prophet who would come promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is that prophet. Actually, Peter had already heard that essentially because Peter, as well as John and John's brother James were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration And whereas Peter was saying, hey, it's great to be at camp. Let's stay up here. Seemed to fit. The Father's voice from heaven says, this is my son, my beloved one. Listen to him. That listen to him is the language of Deuteronomy 18. This is the one in whom I'm revealing myself fully and completely. The prophet like Moses and better than Moses Listen to him. Peter is saying, listen to him. Listen to Jesus as he speaks his word to you. Teenagers, you've heard this over and over again. And you're coming into those years when you're thinking for yourself and making decisions for yourself and weighing options and weighing choices and thinking about what your parents have taught you and the faith that your parents love and uh, some of you have embraced it wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly and are eager to live a life of trusting in Jesus for His glory. And some of you may not be. Some of you may be thinking, I'd rather think for myself, thank you. I'd rather not listen to my parents' religion. Let me tell you, this is not about your parents' religion. This is about Jesus, the Lord of the universe. This is about the king who came as a servant to lay down his life for his people. The creator who came to be rejected so that he might welcome people who deserve only rejection. And God says, listen to him. 
There may be some things about what your parents tell you that you have to take with a grain of salt. They're not infallible. They make mistakes. Not often. Not often, but they do. But Jesus never makes a mistake. And God's Word says, listen to Him. You can trust Him. You can build your life on Him. And if you're not listening to Jesus, you are listening to somebody else. And believe me, whoever that somebody else is who's saying, I've got a better way than Jesus' way, they're just a mouthpiece of the evil one who wants to destroy you. Jesus is the one who's come to give his life to give you life. And every alternative voice that says, no, follow me, don't follow him. Listen to me, don't listen to Jesus. It's just another voice of the, Satan, of, of the serpent of Satan trying to destroy you. Listen, listen and live. That's Peter's exhortation to these folks in the first century. It's God's exhortation to you now in the 21st century. Listen to Jesus, this prophet, and more than a prophet, the Lord himself who's come to bring you life, to bring you blessing. Because Jesus is not only the great and final prophet, he's also the seed of Abraham. The last few verses of Peter's sermon here. He is the promised seed of Abraham. God said to Abraham, verse 25, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Is that all the Israelites? Or is that one individual? Offspring can be either one, but here it's one individual. Because the offspring brings blessing first to Israelites. See? Verse 26. God sent him to you first to bless you by turning you around from your wickedness to bring you to God. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who has promised to bring blessing to the nations. We need to turn ourselves around. That's what Peter said in verse 19. Repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The problem is that's our responsibility But apart from God intervening in our hearts and in our lives, we can't do what we're responsible to do. We just cannot do it. We cannot obey the command to repent unless God sends Jesus to give us repentance, to bless us by turning us around. That is the wonder of God's sovereign, saving grace. He doesn't say, there now, there's salvation out there. I'm going to sit up here in heaven and see if you'll take it. Any of you have the smarts to take it? Take it. Take it. Not so good if we're all dead. We don't have the strength to take it. No, God does more than that. He sends His Son as the suffering servant to endure the wrath that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve for our rebellion, our defiance, our refusal to listen. And then He raises His Son... And in the strength of His Holy Spirit, He turns people around and He says, I want you to turn to Me. Turn to Me, all of the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. That's what He says in Isaiah 45. And the Lord sends Jesus to turn us. He's active by His Holy Spirit to turn us around. So think about the great titles of Jesus in this wonderful sermon and the sign that leads to it. He is the servant of the Lord. He is Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. He is the Holy and Righteous One. He is the trailblazer to life. 
He is the prophet like Moses. He is the seed of Abraham. How should we respond to each of those identities that are all wrapped into the one person of Jesus Christ? Rest in Him, trust in Him, turn to Him, rely upon Him, listen to Him. Embrace God's promise that Jesus alone has blazed the trail through this broken world, the trail that leads to life, to life eventually, when He returns in the Father's timing, life that brings us into a completely fixed new heaven and new earth. Praise God. What a hope we have. And God's given us a preview in this lame man who leapt for joy as faith entered his heart and life, and by faith he experienced the saving touch of Jesus, the Messiah. Let's pray together. Father, we are broken in various ways. Sometimes it shows on the outside. It's always true on the inside that we need the repair that only Your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, can bring to us. We need forgiveness. And we thank You that Jesus has accomplished the basis for our forgiveness once for all in His sacrifice on the cross. We need Your approval. And we thank You that Jesus has accomplished once for all the basis for our approval because He obeyed perfectly inside and out from start to finish where we have failed and faltered over and over again. So You receive us and accept us as righteous in Your sight only for the sake of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. We also need repair. We need our hearts transformed. We need our hearts to be weaned from our love of sin and pleasure and pride and self-righteousness. We need all of those things knocked out of us and overwhelmed with love for Christ, love for You, love for holiness. Fix us, Father. Repair us. Restore us. Now, step by step, be doing that by Your Spirit's quiet work of sanctifying us. And Father, we long for the day when Jesus returns from heaven and the times of full refreshment, the times of restoration dawn in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank You for that promise secured by the work of Jesus Christ and assured to us by Your infallible Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.